You know, most high school um, English classes, literature classes, have a required reading list. And there are certain books and works of literature on that list that it's expected that every high school student at some point is going to interact with this particular literature. Somewhere on that list is William Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. Now, how many of you can remember reading that, working through that when you were in high school? Some of you can. Some of you, it's been a while. But you probably did, I would imagine, at some point. Uh, I can remember in, I think it was in my 10th grade year, we had to read that play, um, had to discuss it, wrote a paper on it. But it was thought to be first performed in 1606. But if you're familiar with the story, uh, Macbeth really dramatizes the damaging psychological effects that political ambition can have on those who seek power for themselves and really destroy lives in the process of trying to acquire that power. Uh, Lady Macbeth convinces her husband, Macbeth, to murder Duncan, who's the king of Scotland, and they sort of scheme together to assume the throne. But as the drama unfolds, it becomes obvious that Lady Macbeth cannot get past the guilt of what she had done. And in one vivid scene, she makes this statement. She says, all the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand. And what she meant by that was that she had blood on her hands that couldn't be removed. She was grappling with guilt. And as the play unfolds a few scenes later, it's assumed that she takes her own life out of a sense of guilt. Guilt is one of the most powerful emotions that we grapple with in life. And it involves dread of the past. It involves pain that wells up in our heart because we've committed some offense or we failed to do something right. One person has said that guilt is a phantom pain, much like amputee's experience after a limb has been removed, where a part of the body that does not exist screams for attention. Other people experience a similar kind of dread whereby they're obsessed by a memory of something said, something done, something that happened years in the past. And it never leaves a person. It robs that person of enjoyment in life. Uh, If they're a believer, it even cripples their devotional life, affects their relationship with other people. And they sort of live in just this perpetual sense that someone will discover their past, and so they work overtime to try to prove themselves to God, but inadvertently only end up building a barrier against the grace of God in their own mind and in their own life. Guilt. It's one of the most crippling issues among people today. In fact, many doctors will even tell you that unresolved guilt is a leading cause of depression and suicide. And Americans every year turn to substance abuse to try to drown their pain, and much of it is out of a sense of guilt that they just cannot escape from. Years ago, there was a psychologist by the name of Roy Baumeister who did a research study of guilt. And he found that the average man or woman spends approximately two hours a day feeling guilty over something. 
For 39 minutes of that time, people feel moderate to severe guilt. And you think about it, there's a wide range of things to feel guilty about. You've got things that are trivial that people often feel guilty about, like eating a second piece of cake. (laughs) To things far more serious than that, there's guilt uh, as far as hurting someone in a relationship that's gone south. But guilt, what it does is that it combines feelings of shame and anxiety and frustration and all of this emotion can well up on the inside of a person. It can build over time and this is especially true when you never deal with it. One person even said that guilt is like that red check engine light on the dashboard of your vehicle. And you can respond to that check engine light one of two ways. You can go see a mechanic Deal with the issue, or you can do what I did in my early 20s, find a piece of duct tape and put over that bad boy and keep right on rolling. (laughs) But I wouldn't advise it. You got your Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, where this morning we're just going to look at two verses, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We've been in a study of this epistle written by the Apostle John. But in these two verses that we're going to look at, the Apostle John tells us what to do about guilt and sin. How do we respond to it? What do we do about it? Where can we go if we're wrestling with just the profound sense of guilt? Well, the Apostle John is going to give us the answer in this passage. Notice he says in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, in other words, if anyone is guilty of committing an offense, if you know you've broken God's commandments, if anyone does sin, listen to this and keep in mind, he's writing to believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Aren't you grateful for that? I want to speak from this subject this morning. We have an advocate. We have an advocate. And really in these verses, the Apostle John, there's a proposition that he's making there in the first part of verse 1. There's a provision that he describes there in the second part of verse 1. And then he mentions a propitiation that has been made there in verse number two. So number one, notice with me John's proposition. He says here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now pay close attention to that phrase, my little children. Because it's the first of seven times that this phrase is going to be used by the apostle. And in no way does this imply that John is talking down to his readers Uh, This is not a rebuke. Uh, This is not a tongue lashing as if they had been behaving like children. Uh, He's not being insulting here, but this is a term of endearment. And the word, it's a diminutive form of the Greek word for child. Now, if you know anything about diminutive words, you know that diminutive words speak of affection and familiarity. We we have diminutive word forms even in English. Uh, For example, a dog... You say that word dog, the diminutive of dog is doggy, right? Uh, Cat, the diminutive word form of cat 
is spawn of Satan, according to some folks. Not me. I'm not in that camp. But it's kitty. Kitty cat. That's the diminutive word form uh, of, of those English words. That's what the Apostle John is doing here. He's using the diminutive form of the word for child. Little children. Uh, this speaks of endearment, love. He's writing as a seasoned shepherd to his little flock whom he greatly loves. Now, most Bible scholars will tell you at this point that John was upwards of 90 years old. He was the last of the apostles still living. Everyone else was younger than him in the church. And so they were all spiritual children to the apostle John. And so this is a a, a way of communicating pastoral concern, deep affection. He wants his readers to know that everything he's written thus far, he's written with this in mind, that they not sin. That they not fall into the trap of sin. He knows the frailty of human nature. He's well aware of the dangers that sin presents. And so he's writing to real people, living in a real world, dealing with real issues. He looks back on his own experience and really he sees that there are two main dangers that always stare us in the face as Christian men and women. On one hand, there's this tendency to become complacent in our lives spiritually. If we're not careful, we can get in a rut. What do you do when you find yourself, you're in a rut? Oftentimes, you've got those guilty feelings associated with being in a spiritual rut. So he doesn't want us to be complacent in my life spiritually. But on the other hand, there's this temptation to become full of despair whenever I find that I have sinned. When I have been in a rut. So those are two extremes that he wants us to avoid. He wants us to avoid complacency, but then on the other hand, he wants us to avoid the depression that comes, the despair that comes from not knowing what to do when we've fallen into the trap of sin. You know, the, the issue is a lot of times in our spiritual lives as believers, we go back and forth between these two extremes. We get spiritually complacent. And we understand that, and and then we become full of despair, not knowing what to do about that. So here John is giving both a command and a comfort. The command is, take your spiritual life seriously as a believer. I'm writing these things to you, my little children, so that you don't fall into sin. But then notice how he follows up the exhortation with a word of consolation or comfort. Uh, He's saying, here's what you do in terms of personal responsibility. Don't fall into the trap of sin. But when you sin, if you sin, he says, you need to know something that God has done. You need to know what God has provided. What God in his infinite grace is always ready to do for us. So he's writing to believers with fellowship in mind. And there's nothing more pressing in a person's life than for that person to be in right relationship with God. To a person that doesn't know God, a person who's never been saved, that person doesn't have a relationship with God. That person needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has opened up the way of access to God. And if a person repents of their sin, believes Jesus Christ, believes the gospel, that person can have a relationship with God. A believer is someone who has a relationship with God, a person who's living in fellowship with God. And we also know that in our lives as believers, when we sin, that sin hinders fellowship, doesn't it? It doesn't sever the relationship that I have with God, but it does hinder the fellowship that I have with God. And that fellowship will be hindered until I 
confess that sin and I repent of that sin and do business with God. And so this is what John is writing about here. He's saying, look, this is key to your joy in life. Sin hinders your fellowship with God. And and fellowship is vital for the experience of joy in your life as a Christian. So John is saying, my little children whom I greatly love, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What are these things that he's referring to? Well, it's everything that he said in chapter 1 through verse 10. That series of conditional statements that he's made, each of which start with this phrase, if we say. And it's, it's, it's basically a form of expressing a wrong way of thinking. Um, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, John says in verse 6 that we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So these are three false claims that a person will often make trying to conceal their sin or denying the fact of their sin. And John's going to follow up each of those with a corrective statement. That's what he's referring to here in verse 1 when he says, I've written these things to you. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, he says we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. And the idea is that a believer is not going to be someone who's going to live in habitual darkness. A believer is going to be someone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're saved They're not perfect, but there's going to be a consistent pattern of obedience in their life because the gospel has changed their life. And the person who's claiming to know God and have a relationship with God and be living in fellowship with God, while at the same time living in ways that's contrary to God's word, John is saying this person is lying. He says there, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To make the claim that a person is sinless, that's a sign that a person's operating under delusion. He says something similar in verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So he's dealt honestly with the sin issue in chapter 1. And he's now saying in chapter 2, as he's beginning verse 1, I'm writing these things to you, my little children, so that we may not sin. If we do sin, there's a provision that's been made, but you need to know that provision so you don't live just with this perpetual sense of guilt and despair. Without joy in your life as a believer, you know that when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so let me tell you something. John is saying sin is something we need to take seriously in our life as believers. And a lot of times people will say, well, the grace of God, that means I can live any way that I want to live. And they'll want to use grace as an excuse to sin. And John is saying in chapter 1, if that's the way you want to live your life, then it's evident that you don't know the grace of God. You've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the proposition. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. How do I deal with sin in an honest and biblical way? Well, notice secondly the provision that the Apostle John speaks of. He says there in verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's an important provision. 
So he follows up each of those negative statements in chapter 1 with a positive affirmation of what Jesus Christ has accomplished by means of his redemptive work. And so in this way, he's reassuring us of God's mercy and the wideness of his mercy. The negative of verse 6, that's followed up by the positive of verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ offered in the sinner's place on the cross, this is what cleanses a person, John says, from all sin. That person who is pleading the blood of Jesus Christ, who's come to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this person has been brought into a place of fellowship with God. And then the negative of verse 8, that's followed up by the positive of verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The light always reveals things hidden in the dark. And so refusal to face my sin honestly reveals that I'm avoiding the light. But if I'm to be honest with myself, I've got to confess my sin before God. And the word that John uses there in verse number 9, there in chapter 1, is an important word. The word confess, it's the word homologeo in Greek, compound word. It simply means to say the same thing. So confession, biblically defined, is saying the same thing about sin that God says. And, and notice it's not just simply admitting guilt. It's not simply admitting something. You can admit something and not truly confess something. But you see, confession goes much deeper than that. Biblical confession means that I agree with God all the way down the line. I'm not making excuses. I'm not trying to justify what I did. I'm not passing the blame off on anyone else. I'm I'm being honest with God all the way down the line, confessing, saying the same thing that he says, but this is obedient faith It's what the Bible talks about, repentance. Doing a 180 means I turn away from my sin and I've placed my faith and my trust in God's provision, Christ. He's the provision for my sin. Now, folks, let me tell you something. That's the only way that you can deal with guilt in your life is by paying close attention to what the Apostle John is saying in these verses. We, we don't try to hide behind a religious facade of appearances. We don't play the part of the hypocrite. We don't bury issues and refuse to deal with them. No, John says if it's fellowship that you want to experience with God, you've got to be honest. And that honesty means confession. Peace of mind is impossible apart from confession. Joy in your life is impossible apart from confessing sin to God. You know, I mentioned last week the illustration of David in what he wrote in Psalm 32 when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin of adultery and had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, had him murdered, had him killed. Then he tried to conceal that sin. He tried to cover that sin. He tried to cover his tracks. But by the way, you can't hide from an omniscient God. God sends the prophet Nathan who confronts David in his sin, but David writes about that in Psalm 32, and he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He just describes the process, this guilt was just 
eating him up on the inside. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then he said, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And he begins that wonderful psalm in this way. Blessed, happy, full of joy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the thing is, if you try to cover your sin, God will expose it. But if you get honest about it and you expose your sin, God will cover it through the provision of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is writing here in these verses. I'm writing these things to you, my little children, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he said, here's the provision. We have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what an advocate is? An advocate is someone who's called alongside to help in time of need. In fact, the Greek word translated advocate here, it's the word parakletos, and and speaks of one who's called to someone else's side. John uses this same word several times in his gospel, especially chapters 14, 15, 16, to refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But uh, in, in that passage, it's translated as comforter or helper. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. He's there in the upper room. He's giving them reassurance. He's giving them comfort, telling them what's about to happen. He's saying, I'm about to go away. And you can imagine, they've devoted three and a half years of their life to following the Messiah. And now he's telling them that he's going away, but it would be to their advantage that he go away. They would be better by the simple fact that he's going away. Now, oftentimes we tend to think that, man, if I could have just lived and saw what they saw, if I could have walked with Jesus, if I could have, if I could have watched the miracles that he performed, if I could have heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is saying, it's going to be better for you that I go away. He says, because if I didn't go away, I couldn't send the comforter who's going to come, parakletos, that's the word, Because the Holy Spirit on the inside of the disciples would be better than the Son of God himself beside the disciples. So it's to your advantage I'm going away because if I didn't, the helper couldn't come to you. Parakletos. He says when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So part of the work of the Holy Spirit involves this convicting work. By the way, this is the same word that the Apostle John is using here in chapter 2 to refer to Jesus as the advocate. It's parakletos, which means that as a believer, listen to me, here's the provision that God has made in your life, in your struggle with sin. You've got parakletos, the Holy Spirit of God. He's come to live within you, to convict you, to lead you into truth. To convict you of sin so that you can live in fellowship with God. But then listen, you've got a parakletos in heaven, the advocate, that's the son of God himself, who's pleading for you, interceding for you before the throne of God the Father himself. What more could I need? What more could I ask for when it comes to dealing with sin in my life? 
I've got a resident helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I've got a heavenly advocate in the person of the Son of God. Now, why is this important, especially as it pertains to guilt? Because listen to me. Oftentimes, there are a lot of Christians that I meet, that I talk to, who because of something in the past that's happened, which they've confessed, they've been forgiven of, they've repented of, but for some reason, they still experience a heavy feeling of guilt over something in the past, and that guilt sidelines them in present service. They feel like, I can't serve because I'm not worthy enough. And it's just that sense of guilt that they still, let me tell you something. That's the enemy. The enemy in Revelation 12, Satan is described as being the accuser of the brethren. The Holy Spirit is not the accuser of the brethren. He's the convictor. He's the comforter. And you need to know the difference between the Spirit's work in your life versus the enemy's accusations of your life. How is this different? Because listen, understanding this will be key to victory in your life as a believer. You need to know something about the Spirit's work. You need to write these down. Uh, First, the Holy Spirit, when He works to convict, uh, He does so legitimately. The Holy Spirit, when He convicts you of sin, He always does so legitimately. And what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit will never convict you of sin that's already been forgiven and cleansed. Uh, God does not bring up again any sin that has been placed under the blood of Jesus Christ. When he forgives me of sin, the Bible says that God removes it from his memory. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34, I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will remember no more. Aren't you grateful that the Holy Spirit deals with us legitimately? That's different from the enemy who's the accuser. He, he constantly wants you to live with a sense of unhealthy guilt over something in the past, even something that's been confessed, repented of. The blood of Jesus has been applied. You've been forgiven. But the enemy wants to bring that back to your memory so as to sideline you in your faith, to rob you of joy and fellowship with the Lord Jesus. The psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. East and west never meet. So the Holy Spirit works legitimately when it comes to conviction. Now, notice the second thing. The Holy Spirit also works to convict us specifically. Specifically. He doesn't deal with us in broad generalities. You glance back up to verse 9, you'll notice that sin is in the plural sense there. If we confess our sins, that is, those that are individual sins that we commit, the Holy Spirit works to convict me individually of sin that I commit. I need to keep a short list of sins. Confession needs to be up to date. When I say something, listen, the role of the Holy Spirit who's come to live within me, parakletos, The role of the Holy Spirit is that he will immediately convict me of something when I sin against God. And so he deals with us specifically. But you see, the enemy oftentimes wants to deal in these broad generalities. Nothing specific so as you just live under this cloud of doom and gloom and despair. No, the Holy Spirit, he's he's specific. And when he convicts, it's legitimate 
It's specific, but then notice third, the Holy Spirit will convict us redemptively. Legitimately, specifically, and redemptively. Uh, Satan accuses you to make you despair, even to push you away from Christ. He wants you so full of guilt that you buckle under the weight of it so as to destroy you. But that's not how the Holy Spirit of God operates. Because the Holy Spirit of God, he convicts, and his conviction, it's, it's, it's redemptive in nature. It doesn't lead me to despair and push me away from Christ. It convicts me redemptively and leads me to Christ. The Spirit's work points me to my Savior, to my heavenly advocate. So I flee to him in whom I find refuge. Two men in Scripture who you see this vividly illustrated in their lives. You've got Simon Peter and you've got Judas Iscariot. Two of the Lord's 12 disciples who both fail miserably. What does Simon Peter do? Well, he denies knowing the Lord three times. Jesus told him that he was going to do it, but he, he thought he knew better. I'm never going to. He didn't understand just how weak his flesh was. And he truly denied knowing the Lord three times. He goes out and he weeps bitterly over it. Judas Iscariot, he betrays innocent blood. And after he understands what he, he sinned against innocent blood, what does Judas do out of the sense of guilt? He hangs himself. He goes to the wrong tree. He needed to go to a tree, but he, he needed to go to the tree that the Lord Jesus died upon. Not kill himself upon a tree. There are a lot of people who wrestle with guilt, and that's how they're responding to guilt and the self-loathing. And the enemies behind that, the work of the Spirit is to convict you and to lead you to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ alone is that guilt removed when you understand who he is and what he's done. So I've got an advocate in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit, parakletos, but my heavenly advocate, listen, this is a legal term. This is the language of a courtroom that the Apostle John is using here in chapter 2, verse 2. And Jesus is my advocate with the Father who's pleading for me, not on the merits of my case, but on the merits of his sacrifice. Now, you know, in a courtroom scene, there are always four people who are involved. You've got the judge, you've got the prosecution, you've got the defense, and you've got a defendant. God the Father is seated at the bar of his holy justice. Perfection is his standard. The prosecution is Satan. Again, Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brethren. But you see, as a believer, I have a defense attorney. I have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And notice the emphasis is on the righteousness of my advocate. It's not so much on my righteousness. That's different from our modern courtroom where we have a defense attorney who's going to plead my case on the basis of my case, the merits of my case. That's not what my heavenly advocate does. Because my heavenly advocate understands something. You know what? I am a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And it is true that I'm guilty. But you see, here's the thing. When my heavenly advocate stands before the bar of God's justice, his father, he's able to plead for me, not on the basis of my merit, but on the merit of his own righteousness. Because he's got some nail prints in his hands. He's got some nail prints in his feet. His side has been riven. He died on a cross and absorbed the wrath of God 
in my place. And so that means now when the enemy wants to accuse. Did you see that thing that Brandon said? Man, he's a sinner. That thought that he had, that attitude that he had, the way that he responded to that person. Trying to get home on Westchester at 515, you know. Oh, that's good for your sanctification, by the way. <laughs> but my advocate is there to say, when my enemy accuses me, yes, Father, Brandon Ware is guilty of that sin. But you see, I went to the cross and I died for that sin. And I paid the price for his redemption. He's been covered by my blood. His guilt has been removed. And that's what it means to have an advocate who pleads for you on the basis of his righteous merit. You need to know that as a believer. And when the enemy comes along and says, you're not worthy, you can't serve, you have no testimony, you simply plead the blood of Jesus. So that's the proposition, the provision. One final thing, the propitiation that's spoken of there in verse 2. How is Jesus qualified to be my advocate? Parakletos. Well, it's this word propitiation. Jesus has been set forth as a propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the whole world. Which means the cross is the one and only place that a sinner can go to find forgiveness and cleansing from sin. That word propitiation is a word that speaks of wrath that has been turned aside. Which means that the wages of sin is death. The holiness of God, the justice of God demands that the sinner die for his sin. All of us are guilty. But guess what? I have an advocate. Jesus was my substitute who died in my place. And, and really, you've got two theological words, expiation, propitiation. Expiation, this refers to the removal of guilt. This is what Jesus did upon the cross as my sacrifice for sin. But propitiation, this is a word that means divine wrath has been removed. It's been turned aside. And that's why Jesus is qualified, only qualified. No one else is qualified. He's the priest who offers the sacrifice. He's the perfect lamb who is the sacrifice. <laughs> so here's the issue. How am I dealing with guilt in my life? How am I really getting to, how am I dealing with guilt in my life? Let me give you just some closing points of application here, just to bring this home. First of all, you need to realize that frustration comes from trying to conceal your sin. So be honest about it. Be honest about it. And that's what the Apostle John is calling his readers to in this passage. Don't conceal your sin. Be honest about it. It's foolish to try to pretend it will go away. I heard about a fellow who purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake. Now, this guy probably was crazy. He had a pet snake. If you have a pet snake and I've offended you, like I said, you're crazy if you have a pet snake. <laughs> but he dropped this unsuspecting mouse in this snake's glass cage where the snake was sleeping on a bed of sawdust. 
And so the tiny mouse had this serious problem on his hands. At any moment, he could be swallowed alive. And so obviously, the mouse needed to come up with a plan. What did this terrified little creature do? Well, he quickly went to work trying to cover the snake with sawdust chips until the snake was completely buried in those sawdust chips. And the mouse thought that he had solved his problem. But you see, the thing is, the solution came from the outside. Because the man had pity on the the silly little mouse, he reached in and removed him from the cage. There is absolutely no amount of effort on my part that could ever remove the guilt of sin. No matter how hard we try to cover it, no matter how we try to deny it, it's a fool's errand. Sin will eventually shake off its cover. And were it not for the master's gracious hand, sin would eat us alive. And he's not just removed us from the situation, but man, he's absorbed the venom of the bite, hadn't he? Through his own death on the cross. So frustration comes from trying to conceal your sin. You need to be honest about it. And then secondly, forgiveness comes through confessing your sin. So be obedient to it. And if you want to know what that looks like, again, David is a wonderful illustration of this in the Old Testament. You can go to Psalm 51 some point, read that. He's dealing honestly with it. He's confessing it. And then one third point of application here is that fellowship comes by being cleansed from sin. And so be thankful for it. If you want to know joy deep within your spirit, then pay close, careful attention to what John is saying in these verses. He wants us to have fellowship with God. He wants us to have fellowship with one another. Sin hinders this fellowship. But when we do sin, let's thank God that we've got a promise from God that when we confess it, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father because he is the propitiation for our sins. And so if there's guilt in your life from something that's already been confessed, that's a, that's a festering wound that's not of God, it's of the enemy. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? We have an advocate Listen, if you've never come to faith in Jesus as your Savior, what's holding you back today? What's holding you back? If you've sensed the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin, listen to me. Respond in obedient faith. Believe the gospel and be saved. Turn away from your sin. Agree with God about it. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's nowhere else you can run. Nowhere else you can turn. Jesus and Jesus alone. But believer, what about you in your life as the Holy Spirit has been so faithful to do His work in your life, exposing sin and areas of weakness? Are you confessing those honestly with God in your daily walk with Christ? If it involves relationships and sins against other people, are you working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, even going to those persons that you've sinned against and dealing with it at an honest level.
Are you living with an unhealthy sense of guilt from something in the past, some failure, something you failed to do, something you did, you wish you didn't do, but you've confessed it honestly. You know you've been forgiven in Jesus. Why live under a cloud of shame when God wants you to experience the fullness of joy? You have a parakletos within, the Holy Spirit. You've got a parakletos before the Father, your advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. Lord, thank you for this promise. Thank you for the gracious provision of the gospel. And Lord, we're to preach the gospel to those who are lost and perishing. But Lord, we're to preach the gospel to ourselves every day as believers. Because it gets so easy, Lord, for us to become complacent. We need to remind ourselves of these truths every day. We want to be spiritually sensitive, Lord. Moldable in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.